No matter who you are, no matter your level of belief, the stock you put into matters of the super or preternatural, you've felt the sensation that is most easily described as off. There have been psychological studies about this, and if done right, this is what makes horror movies or a solid campfire ghost story effective. The order is disrupted. The human mind is used to patterns and has spent your entire existence collecting and filing stimuli to flesh out those patterns. Sights, smells, sounds, the whole gambit of sensory and sensual input that allows you, if nothing else, to survive. The smell of smoke signals danger. The feel of raindrops on your skin, or a sudden drop in temperature, urges you to find shelter. The scent of warm apple pie reminds you that you haven't eaten yet. Each of these, and countless others, fit into the perception of the world you've created, and ensure your basic human needs are met. So what happens when something doesn't fit? What if the pattern shifts? What if you stumble upon, for lack of a better phrase, a glitch in your own personalized matrix? An action response, fight or flight. Even the most staunch skeptic has experienced this sensation. Survival is paramount. And when your mind alerts you to whatever stimuli has tripped the alarm, you feel fear. For some, this fear is chalked up to the necessity for survival and their corresponding actions are done so to ensure their life will go on, either attack the anomaly or flee from it, and then study it from afar for a future battle. For others, the fear is interpreted as a confirmation of the unexplainable, proof, at least to them, that their belief in the supernatural isn't misguided. In this way, which is worse? Both the skeptic and the believer feel something off in a darkened alley or in an abandoned house. One interprets this sensation to the threat of imminent danger, while the other considers what this means for the very fabric of their reality. So the next time you find yourself alone in a basement and your skin begins to crawl, your stomach sinks, and you want to run from what you can't explain, ask yourself this. Are you running from immediate danger? Or are you running from the possibility that everything you know about reality might come crashing down? Either way, the bottom line, though, is this. No matter the level of belief, both the believer and the skeptic agree. The threat is real. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 6 When it was built, the house on Muldoon Street did not have central air. This was added some ten years later by the original owner, 
Patrick Westerberg. It appeared that he and his wife Rose may have gotten fed up with ceiling and hand fans. Along with the keys, Kate and Denny received a folder full of contracts, warranties, and instruction manuals on the day of the house signing. The collection was mostly irrelevant, but meticulous, with detailed guides for the operation of an archaic blender and receipts for vinyl siding that had once covered the house's brick facade, but were since unceremoniously stripped away. An estimate for expanding the concrete pad of the basement, which was never done, as the figures measured mirrored the floor plan of the house above, Patrick, or more likely his wife, Rose, had kept everything. Some had proved useful, like the instruction manual for the sand swirl pool pump and timing box just inside the basement door, although knowledge of their processes couldn't help the Coleman's pool from remaining green or the warranty paperwork for the dishwasher, which had been purchased by Rose after her husband's death. This line of armchair investigation was deduced by Kate early on, as nearly every other contractual piece of legal or economic paper in the binder was signed, first and foremost, by Patrick. Rose's signature only appeared occasionally. Everything, up to the point of his death, was in his name. In fact, one holdup while they were in escrow was when the lawyers and other money grubbers discovered the house had never been in Rose's name, so they had to put out notices in local publications for any blood-related claimers to come forward. None did. The only two documents with Rose's sole signature were for the new dishwasher and warranty package from the Home Depot down the street, and for a new AC unit along with a complete refurbishment of the aftermarket ducting system within the walls of the home. Upon entering the basement, Kate had a brief moment of gratitude that the former woman of the house had spent the money. There was even a vent installed in the basement, not by Rose, but during the original install. Kate had thought this strange, but Denny said he loved having the room cold while he worked. Old Patrick had the right idea for his workshop. Already dug halfway into the earth, the basement space enveloped her in frigid air. Coming from the sticky heat of the backyard, it felt like stepping from one world into another. Kate scanned the space for Joan, but not finding her wasn't the first distressing aspect. The room was different. Tools and boxes shifted from the earth inside, to the wall next to the pool outside. The sole window was now covered, and the afternoon light could only trickle in around Denny's tall red toolbox. Not only that, the space had grown. Before, the room was roughly the size of their master bedroom directly above, 14 by 14 feet, with two brick and two plywood sheeted walls. Now, those old wooden panels were stacked next to Denny's toolbox. Beyond where they stood were mounds of churned dirt that, if she were drunk, might look like earthen waves. Within the dirt, sporadically, were the vague shapes of familiar items, furniture and hand tools. Opposite the door, the ground rose to waist level, ending at the brick wall that connected to the front of the house. 
To her right, stretching down the length of the ranch layout above, the lumpy ground maintained a steady incline that terminated, as far as Kate could judge, at the slab in the carport. There was, she assumed, a brick wall back there, too, somewhere in the earth. But why? Why did the foundational brick go down so far into the ground? Different era, she thought. Regulations. Codes. Maybe something to do with the water table, or the Georgian soil. But the house sits at the crest of a hill. It's probably one of the highest sitting houses in the neighborhood. A ticking sound broke this line of thought, like the cooling of an engine, coming from over her head. Kate looked up to see bundled telephone and electrical cables secured along the exposed joists. Water and sewer pipes plunged down and curled at a soft angle to follow the same path as the cords. Without realizing it, Kate had walked nearly the length of the original space and was standing underneath the master bathroom. The pipes split off and converged again, like thick webbing, snaking their way into the deepening darkness of the enlarged basement. It wasn't larger, she thought. It had always been this size, the same shape as the house over her head. As above, so below. But the previous owner judged that the majority of the space was unusable, so he had thrown up the plywood dividers to give it a more finished appearance. The tick-tick-tick was growing louder above her, and had lost the original rhythm. Maybe it's the AC trying to come back on, she thought. And she was nearing the vent that hung down into the space. The plywood sheet had been cut around the ducting and register, and now Kate would need to duck under if she wanted to go any further. Then, her whole purpose for coming in here came roaring back. Joan. Denny's mother had come in here, not two minutes before, but now she was nowhere to be seen. Had she ventured back into the darker, uncharted space that the two fluorescent shop lights glow couldn't reach? Joan? Kate stopped walking, the tips of her slippers near where the concrete met the dirt. The ticking grew louder still, and erratic, sounding now less like cooling or expanding pipes, but like chewing. The maniacal mastication of something insectile, something that had no regard for the subtleties of human politeness. Mom? Kate called again, this time feeling the need to raise her voice above the sound overhead. She began to think that maybe there was another space back there, in the dark, something that Joan had discovered and was now out of earshot. But that was insane. Denny's mother had a hard time with the back steps. There was no way she'd be scrambling around these mounds of dirt. But still, Kate felt drawn to find out for herself. Like there was something to find back there. And damn it, if this was Joan's idea of a joke, or, she thought, what if Joan was inside the dirt? What if she were waiting to jump out? But that too was ridiculous. Joan wasn't a humorless woman by any means. But this wouldn't be like her. Denny, sure. He loved the long play. The elaborate scare. What if her mother-in-law had been dragged into the dirt? What if she were under one of these soft mounds, gasping, 
choking on rocks and powdered earth as she tried to call out for Kate to save her. And then, the worst thought. What if all the mounds were people who had been drug in and suffocated? Kate could feel the double thump of her heart. Thought she could hear it now. Beads of sweat formed on her brow. She began to step forward. The sound above her intensified. The individual slashes and chomps becoming so frequent that they began to meld into a single cacophonous rush. As she moved her eyes to the exposed ceiling, she pictured the claws and gnashing teeth of grayish-brown rats foaming and tearing at a locked door on a sinking ship. But there was nothing there. Not insects, not rodents, just the continuation of the pipes running off into the black. At the same moment, the shop lights, which had a built-in motion timer of five minutes, snapped off. Though Denny's big red toolbox was covering the only window, there was still enough of the afternoon sun spilling in the door she'd left open. This new lighting scheme cast a long shadow of her silhouette onto the inclined earth, with her head, neck, and shoulders mingling in the inky shadows at the far end. Her temples throbbed, mouth parched suddenly, as if the moisture were sucked out by a dentist's hooked vacuum. Pulling her foot back, the sound above her subsided, slowing to a soft rat-a-tat once again. Was that the sound snakes made? Like a rattle? This is all in your head, Kate thought. You're just freaking yourself out. That's just the sound of blood rushing in your own ears. But even as she tried to make herself believe that, Kate knew it wasn't true. Then, a second thought came to her. What if Joan hadn't come in here at all? Kate thought she'd seen Joan slipping into the basement, but what if it was just a trick of light or shadow? That was it. It had to be. Joan was out by the pool. She'd probably come upstairs to get Kate so that they could fetch a dead bird out of the pool or to ask her why the chemicals they'd been dumping in the pool hadn't seemed to dent the murky green depths or to show her that damn snake again. In her irritation, and with eyes exhausted from staring at a computer screen, she'd tricked herself into thinking that Joan had gone into the basement. And Kate thought that she were just tricking herself again with the shadows and the chewing sounds, the idea that the basement of her dream home were filled with bodies. This was all a product of stress and exhaustion, of feeling trapped and claustrophobic, both physically and metaphorically. Fuck this, Kate whispered, the consonants of the curse word helping to amplify her new resolve. She'd just march right back out into the cone of the motion sensors, let their false light wash over her, then get the hell out of the basement, find Joan by the pool, and then she would get her shit together. But as she began to turn around, something caught her eye. Something small and cylindrical sticking out of a nearby mound. A breathing tube, Kate thought, for one of the victims. But that was impossible, because the mound was barely more than a foot tall. It was at the edge of the dirt rise, just beyond where one of the plywood sheets had been. As she looked closer, her stomach sank. Is that a finger? And before she could stop herself, Kate was kneeling down. As she began to reach toward the mound, the clawing, wrenching sound came up again, 
Kate yanked her hand back, looking first at the ceiling, then in her immediate vicinity, thinking that she were about to be overtaken by a swarm of beady-eyed rodents. But she was still alone. Still, something told her not to reach over, not to cross the line. She walked over and picked up a garden rake that rested against the wall. With one hand, Kate stabbed the dirt and pulled back toward herself. Some of the dirt spilled over the imaginary line, looking like pepper or coffee grounds scattered into the doorway's light. With the dirt came not a human finger, but the slender handle of a pocket mirror. Kate raked it closer, and once it was between her slippers, she bent and picked it up. This wasn't an old, fancy, intricately carved piece, something Victorian, but rather a cheap plastic mirror you could find on any hairdresser's workstation. Flecks of dirt and grime streaked the reflective surface. Kate rubbed it on her hip, then lifted it to her face. What she saw was so off, so peculiar, that it took her a few seconds to wrap her head around it. Nothing was unusual with Kate's own reflection. Instead, what lay behind her was distressing. From the place where she stood, and the angle at which she was holding the mirror, the open basement door was visible over her right shoulder. Nothing wrong there. It was what lay beyond the door. Nothing. Black. Not the same intense black she saw in her bathroom upstairs, but rather the darkness of night. She also saw that the little light that had been filtering in around the toolbox was gone. But how was that even possible? It couldn't have been more than 2 or 2.30 in the afternoon. The sun wouldn't set for another five hours, and full dark for another hour or so beyond that. Even if a storm had rolled in sometime during the few minutes she'd been in the basement, it wouldn't have had the same darkness that night boasts. Kate looked back to study her own reflection, the crooks and burgeoning wrinkles of her own grimacing face. Only, there was no lamp or other source of light in front of her to be able to illuminate her features from this side. The notion made her feel colder than she already was. She thought her teeth might start clacking together. These weren't the most disturbing pieces, though. Wasn't what was making her heart thud against her ribs. It was the fact that she could still see sunlight in her periphery, not in the mirror. On the brick wall to her left, and on the dirt beyond where she held the mirror. And although she wasn't looking away from the mirror, she could still see the thin, alien outline of her shadow cast onto the dirt. Clearly, the sun was still crawling into the room yet the mirror's reflection insisted otherwise. With some effort, Kate peeled her eyes from the plastic mirror and looked down. Light flowed around and through her legs. The spatter of dirt between her toes was still there, but had formed into a thin, sweeping line, as if it were being blown or pulled back toward the rest of the earth. When she looked back into the reflection, she saw that she was no longer alone. Joan stood behind her, her face hovering just over Kate's left shoulder, eyes closed. Kate's tremors softened briefly as she felt the presence bloom behind her. Kate was about to toss the mirror back into the mound and spin on her heels, thinking she wanted nothing more than a hug from her second mom at that moment when she froze.
With a single glance, the face belonged to Denny's mom. But with more than a second of scrutiny, the differences were clear. The skin of the figure was pale like cigarette smoke. Her cheeks were somehow both sunken in and sagging. The thin skin was like candle wax that nestled into the nooks of her teeth and hung from her jaw. Gray-green mucus poured from her flared nostrils, down the gully of her upper lip, and into her grinning mouth. Its lips were split in multiple places, redness glistening in each stretching wound. And the eyes. When its eyelids opened, there were no pupils, no irises, no cones or rods, no white. Instead, it looked as if the mirror's reflection were a photograph, and where its eyes should have been, black ink had been scrawled in circular scribbles. Behind the hand mirror, there was a second shadow stretching out next to her own. Both seemed to dominate the ascending dirt and disappear into the blackness. A scream rose within her, but as Kate opened her mouth to set it free, a cold hand rose and clamped over her mouth. At the same time, the mirror showed the basement door wobble, then slam shut. Kate felt frozen by the thing's touch, unable to even blink her eyes. Not that it mattered. The room and Kate was blanketed by an incredible darkness, impenetrable, as if she'd been struck blind. And the sound of the mirror breaking after she'd dropped it was the last thing she heard before the roar of the clawing nails and gnashing teeth rose to a deafening new level. So loud, covering anything else, that she'd essentially been struck deaf as well. The only sensation she had left, the only sense, it seemed, was touch, and this had been amplified. Sharp bones worked in the hand that covered her mouth, constricting, and cutting off any airflow into her nose as well. Then, the feel of the fingers in the small of her back. Their wetted points increased pressure as they traced up her spine, then started to scuttle around the nape of her neck. When the hands joined together, forming a cuff around her throat, Kate broke free. This was not from an act of will or defiance, like thrusting her elbow back into her assailant like she had been taught in a college self-defense course, but because the sensation of those gaunt hands around her neck, the sudden deprivation of her senses, and the hyperventilation she had descended into once the hand had shifted position, made her knees buckle. Kate's body crumpled to the ground like a discarded nightgown. Not even putting her hand out, the back of her head smacked the concrete floor. Not hard enough to bleed or cause irreparable damage, but enough to deepen her disorientation. She lay there for what seemed like hours, but was probably less than the time it had taken for her to fall over. She waited for something, a sound other than the waves of scratching either some light to magically appear, or for her eyes to adjust to the dark. For the things that looked like a woman she loved, to envelop her. To straddle her and lock those frigid, boning fingers around her neck again. But there was nothing, to her benefit or detriment. When she felt like she could, Kate touched the ground around her, hoping to find something that might help get her bearings, like the rake 
anything tangible that still had roots in reality. She also hoped, prayed, that she wouldn't feel ankles, that she wouldn't feel legs. Nothing was within her grasp. In a moment of clarity, she thought, the door was right behind me in the mirror. Kate judged that since she'd fallen straight back, the basement door would be no more than 10 feet beyond her splayed hair. Although no hands were grasping at her, and the lure of thinking no immediate danger was still upon her, Kate still felt Joan in the room with her. No, Kate thought, not Joan. Rolling onto her stomach, Kate pushed up to her hands and knees and began crawling toward where she expected the door to be. After a few feet, the scratching slowed to a trickle. Though no reprieve was found in its absence, because the sound of shuffling footsteps took its place. Bare feet, scuffling and squeaking on the concrete. Close by her left side, then immediately on her right, some feet away. Like it was pacing around her, then jumping over her arched back as she crawled. With each second, Kate felt like the footsteps would stop, and then she'd feel weight on her back, fingers on her neck. But somehow, miraculously, her hand touched the chilled aluminum of the basement door. She slid her hand up the metal until she could curl her fingers around the handle. Then, clasping her other hand over the first, Kate pulled herself to her feet. The door won't open, Kate thought. It's locked. I'm stuck in here forever. Or for the next few seconds until it strangles me. But when she rotated her hands, the handle did so too. As soon as the latch came free of the frame, sunlight flooded the space. At the same time, the fluorescent shop lights clicked back on. Kate was blinded again, not by the absence of, but by the sudden flood of illumination. Not even trying to look behind her, Kate stumbled out into the hot backyard and veered toward the stairs. She misjudged and tripped over the first step, falling onto the wood steps with a painful thud. But she was on her feet again and taking the stairs two at a time. With a rush of relief, she saw Roxy and Echo on the other side of the sliding glass door, their tails wagging. They were jumping at the glass, tongues hanging out like they'd just been run around the block. Kate grasped the handle and pulled, but the door wouldn't budge. The dogs began barking. Trying again, Kate saw the door was locked from the inside. One of the dogs might have accidentally latched it with their paws, but Kate also saw that they'd stopped wagging now, and their lips were peeled back into sneers that revealed the sharp weapons that Kate had never seen them use before. She could hear their growls through the glass. Then, a cold hand was back on her head, fingers snaking into her hair. First, her head was yanked back at a gruesome angle, then thrust forward into the door. Before everything went black, the last thing Kate saw were both of her dogs rearing back, as if bracing for a coming attack. presented by Dr. Scarelove. Theme music was provided by Atrium Carcheri. 
please check out Adrian Carcheri and all of the other artists on the Cryo Chamber label on Bandcamp. You can find links to all this in the show notes. Be sure to like and subscribe. And as this is a brand new podcast, any reviews on Apple Podcasts are extremely helpful. And speaking of, I want to give a shout out to two new reviewers this week. Uh, D-S-A-F-L-E-W-8-O-R-U, or I guess that's dsa flu 8 or you and genocide thank you so much for the kind words uh, it makes me feel like i should keep doing this um, anyone who leaves a review will get a shout out on the next episode and remember there are two types of people in this world the haunters and the haunted which one are you